Hello and welcome to the Bunker Podcast. I'm Gavin Esler. Today, as we approach the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, the difficulties caused to peace in Northern Ireland by Brexit keep coming back time after time. That's because the Irish border has been an issue for more than a century. Men and women have been prepared to die and to kill to keep the border or to get rid of it. And so today we want to look back at one of the most extraordinary events of the Troubles. In the autumn of 1984, the provisional IRA came close to killing the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. She was staying at the Grand Hotel in Brighton for the Conservative Party conference. Five people were killed in the Brighton bombing, including the Conservative MP and Deputy Chief Whip, Sir Anthony Berry. In fact, the IRA came close to wiping out much of the British cabinet. The Guardian's Ireland correspondent Rory Carroll spent two years trying to piece together what exactly happened in Brighton, how the IRA almost assassinated one of the most closely guarded leaders in the world, and what, if anything, they hoped to achieve. Rory Carroll joins me now to talk about his new book, Killing Thatcher, The IRA, The Manhunt and The Long War on the Crown, based on hundreds of interviews with former IRA members, police detectives, bomb disposal experts and politicians. Hello, Rory. Hello, Gavin. Thank you for having me. Well, I have to say I enjoyed the book greatly. I was going to go with the old cliche that it reads like a thriller, and in many cases it does. But I'm fascinated by why you thought it was worth revisiting something that happened almost 40 years ago. So how did the book come about? I'd been away from Ireland. I'm from Dublin, and I started my career in the mid-90s in Belfast, uh, the local newspaper there. It was the the twilight of the Troubles. Uh, It was between the IRA ceasefires. I then was away for 20 years as a foreign correspondent for The Guardian. And I kind of forgot all about uh, Ireland, happily so. The rest of the world seemed a lot more interesting. But then when I came back in 2018 as Ireland correspondent, I started rereading and catching up on what I'd missed. And, you know, these things jumped out at me. And I just realized that, you know, stuff that I'd grown up with, with the Troubles, that had seemed somewhat kind of familiar, were actually anything but. It felt like an alien landscape of memory that I didn't, hadn't, things were different from how I had remembered them. And when I then read that Patrick McGee, the Brighton bomber, had done a memoir, I perked up. I thought, well, this sounds interesting. I'll m- maybe do a story about this for The Guardian. So I put in for an interview with him and read his memoir. And it was fascinating about his his childhood um, and why he joined the IRA. But about the Brighton operation itself, it drew over a veil. He said quite clearly, you know, that I'm not going to reveal any operational details. And it was left at that. Reading, preparing for that interview with McGee, I had to kind of read around the, the Brighton story. And again, I, I'd assumed it was all so familiar. I mean, I'd remembered I'd been, I was 12 years old when Norman Tebbett was, I can remember the images of him, him being dragged out from the rubble. And I just thought, well, we all kind of know this already. But then I realized, well, actually, I, I don't. Um, you know, there's so much is not known or things have been forgotten. And the more I got into it and the more I realized, well, actually, there's a really fantastic untold story here. I suppose one of the most important parts of the background is to remember that, of course, Margaret Thatcher was always a controversial figure, but how she was seen in Ireland, particularly Northern Ireland, in 1984, because of what had happened just before in the hunger strikes. Maybe you could give us a bit of that context, because that was so bitter, it's difficult to explain it nowadays, I think. It was, and the kind of the initiating spark really for the, the Brighton, the plot and the IRA attempt to, to, to kill Thatcher was really rooted in the hunger strikes. So from 19, 
81, when the Republican prisoners in the maze prison wanted to get recognition as political prisoners. And so they at such an important point for the for the Republicans that they were willing to starve themselves to death for that. And Margaret Thatcher refused to bend. She said, uh, no, you are criminals. You know, a criminal is a criminal is a criminal. And you're not going to be allowed to behave as kind of prisoners of war. I mean, retrospectively, actually, it turns out that there was a bit more flexibility. And behind the scenes, Thatcher was more flexible than she appeared. But in terms of Republican demonology, Thatcher became, well, as these 10 men starved themselves to death, I mean, that was an extraordinary psychodrama um, for Ireland, North and South. And Thatcher was the, the, was the, the villain of the piece. I mean, she was perceived to be this heartless, regal, haughty figure who happened to, you know, was happy to let 10 men die these horrible deaths. And so she became a hate figure, really on par with Oliver Cromwell. I mean, that was that in, intense loathing and hatred for Thatcher. And so the Republicans decided, so the IRA decided that they would try and make a serious attempt to kill her. One of the things that I think is revealing in the book is the sense to which there was a debate, and always has been a debate, actually, within the IRA about what exactly they should be doing, what the strategy should be, and whether they should take what was quite an extraordinary risk in, from their point of view, in trying to kill a British leader, knowing that if they had succeeded, uh, the consequences would have been, frankly, unprecedented because nobody knows how the British state would have reacted had the British prime minister been assassinated. That's right. I mean, certainly the IRA Army Council was braced for a huge backlash. I mean, they were uh, expecting to be hunted wherever they were would try to hide um, by the security forces, and they expected really a hurricane of a response. And they also debated whether or not to tell uh, provisional IRA members just on the eve of the attack that to lie low and to, to, to hunker down, hide, because a storm is coming. They decided not to do that because they feared that the new infiltrators, informers, you know, could then relay the message back to the Brits that something was up. And so they decided to, to not do that. But the leadership certainly was expecting, um, was very nervous, they even the experience of having killed Lord Louis Mountbatten in 1979 had left a nervousness on the part of the leadership. They felt that the British then did not really come after them that hard, but they they they, they sensed that this time it could really happen. You know, it begs the question: well, well, then why did they do it? I mean, even if there's this nervousness, and one part was sheer hatred for for Thatcher and the fact that killing her would have been hugely popular with Republican grassroots. Uh, in Northern Ireland, and also because by 1984, the if there was to the extent that there was any strategic thinking behind this, it was that the troubles were reaching had reached a stalemate. Um, it was clear that the IRA were not going to drive the British army into the sea, but also clear that the uh, the IRA was undefeated. Patrick McGee himself, the Brighton bomber. Uh, is quite an extraordinary figure. He's an extraordinary figure in the sense that he's a classic grey man in many ways, isn't he? He's he's actually, you know, kind of normal, but a bit boring, if anything. If you met him, I suspect. I mean, you did. I I, I didn't. So maybe sketch in a little bit about his, his background, which was also quite troubled in terms of his relationships and so on. 
Yes, well, I, in fact, I, um, I met him only over Zoom. Um, I've tried um, in, in uh, other times to meet him in person, but it was during the pandemic when I did an interview with him for the for, for an article in the Guardian. But yes, McGee, you know, within IRA circles, he's just known as, as Pat. They say, "Oh, yeah, he's a quiet one." Yeah, he had a very interesting background. I mean, he was well in West Belfast nationalist um, family, but that moved to England. Uh, the father moved to England for work uh, in the um, in the 1950s. And so McGee grew up there, unhappily so, because he missed um, the, the extended family and the, the sights and smells of Belfast, of home. He also had a, a, tr- a troubled upbringing as a teenager. He, he, um, he ran about with kind of mischievous gangs, ended up getting arrested. And quite uh, fatefully, he was fingerprinted at the age of, I think he was 16 uh, at the time, for having broken into a butcher shop. Now, this fingerprint that was taken at that time came back to haunt him decades later. And when the troubles erupted, he went back to Northern Ireland and he kind of found his tribe, if you like, which in this case happened to be the Republican movement. He became what they call an engineer, one of the engineering officers. Basically, it's a bomb maker. And there was not a huge queue to become a bomb maker at that time, because in the early 70s, uh, a lot of IRA bomb makers blew themselves up. Um, I mean, it was you know, because they were still learning, you know, and they're having to improvise explosives, learn new techniques. There was no Google. So they were, um, you know, they were making mistakes. They were under pressure. And yet McGee had the, you know, the nerve, if you like, um, and the self-control to not only to become uh, a bomb maker and also a bomb planter, but to survive. He was then caught in the early 70s and interned with all, like so many other provosts. And in prison, he fell under the, they fell under the spell, but he became uh, very impressed with the the talks, the kind of jailhouse talks given by a young kind of hippie and these kind of bell bottoms um, with a beard by the name of Jerry Adams, uh, who was only in his 20s, but was already becoming a legendary figure of not only a guy who can fight the Brits, but he can outthink the Brits. I mean, this was kind of the, the, the legend of Adams that, you know, he was he was really smart because, well, he was and he could he could see further down the road of where the conflict was going than than almost anybody else. Anyway, so McGee was very uh, impressed with Adams and part of Adams is, uh, I suppose one needs to be careful here about what, what I say, but the, the war in England was given priority because, again, politically, it felt that a bomb in London worth 100 or even a thousand in Belfast. So upon his release, McGee volunteered for the England department, which was not a straightforward thing because it was so secretive that you can't just, you, you couldn't even tell your buddies in the IRA that you wanted to join the England department. That's how secret and cloistered it was. You had to kind of tell someone who would tell someone else, tell someone else who kind of, and kind of crab-like edge your way in to the England department. And so when he was finally selected, in the late 70s to operate in England, uh, he some of his own comrades in Belfast thought he just buggered off, that he just disappeared, he abandoned the, the struggle. Whereas in fact, no, he was on like for the IRA version of a, a kind of undercover commando across, you know, operating behind enemy lines. And one advantage he had, of course, was that he could do an English accent and he had lived in England, unlike many of his comrades who had never been outside Belfast. And for some of the provosts, I mean, even it's going down the road to like to Newry or to, you know, Ballymena, you know, would be is like would be so far out of what they knew. 
Whereas, so and so in England, a lot of them, right? You know, they, they stuck out like sore thumbs. The bombing itself was just quite extraordinary. I mean, how it was done. Maybe you could just explain a little bit about that, because every one of McGee's characteristics that you've just mentioned would make him the person that could do it because he was secretive, because he was a loner, and because within the IRA, the security had to be so tight. But how did he actually achieve it? Well, he, and he's quite modest about this. He says, you know, that he was the last, merely the last link in the chain. There would have been, you know, between, you know, probably more than two dozen people involved in the Brighton operation in terms of uh, scouting for like three years before the Brighton bombing. Um, IRA scouts were doing reconnaissance at party conferences in Blackpool and Brighton, um, including a labor um, conference to study potential targets. What, how do the police operate there? What, what, are the, what, what are the security protocols? And so they, were, you know, they, they had been doing their homework. They knew that then in 1984 was their designated. They said, okay, we'll go after Thatcher by now because we, we can prepare a bomb. They sent a construction engineer over to Brighton to study the architecture of the, the Grand Hotel, which was this big Victorian kind of wedding cake um, on the seafront, and to see, well, what would happen, you know, where should the bomb be planted? And they assumed that, they, that Thatcher would be in the Napoleon suite on the first floor, and so they really had to do a lot of homework uh, on that. And then McGee was the last link in the chain in that he was, it was his job to, to check into the hotel as a guest. So in, in September 15th, 1984, which is three weeks before the conference, he turns up quite s- smartly dressed and he walks in off the street and asks for a sea-facing room. He knew that he had a mental matrix of which rooms would work for the bomb. He was offered... Um, room 629, which is already in the matrix. So he was able to accept that room and said, okay, thanks. He then spent three days, three nights in that room, hardly ever left, which made sense, of course, because the room was filled with, you know, uh, explosives and wires and uh, equipment. So you would not want housekeeping to discover that. And so he was, you know, living on room service for, you know, cups of tea, turkey sandwiches, whilst patiently assembling the bomb. And then... Uh, concealing it behind a bath panel um, underneath the bath where there was a cavity. What was very impressive was that virtually nobody could remember him. Even when a few weeks later, the police were interviewing absolutely anybody and everybody that had been in the hotel, staff, other guests, and saying, this man, and he checked in under a pseudonym called Roy Walsh. And hardly anybody could remember what he looked like, what he'd sounded like exactly, what he'd done, had he eaten in the restaurant. Um, he was he was like a, a fuzzy blur. And so then he was able to, after three days, he just checked out, left the bomb pulsing up in the under the bath of so 629, and he walked away. Um, and the, the stage was set for the assassination of Margaret Thatcher. It was an attack, obviously, that echoed around the world. I mean, from Ronald Reagan to Colonel Gaddafi, people took views. And actually, um, Mikhail Gorbachev, as you say in the book, was uh, very impressed with how the Iron Lady managed to handle what must have been the most horrific circumstances for her and for the families of the five who died. But what really uh, I found absolutely revealing in the book was how the 
manhunt began, and not just for the local police, but for other police forces too, and how very small uh, techniques used by the police turned out to be very clever. For example, the person in Sussex Police who was leading the the manhunt, uh, you say, he appeared on Crime Watch to make an appeal for Roy Walsh to come forward because Roy Walsh was the name that was used by McGee. And he was actually delighted when nobody came forward because then they knew that was the person. That person wasn't the right name. That wasn't the right name, but that was a person. I thought that was very, very interesting. And the sophistication of the police manhunt and the extraordinary patience with which people went through fingerprints, uh, given that computer technology wasn't available. So maybe you could explain a bit about that, because in a way, that is also a very hidden part of the story, because what we've talked about in the bombing itself is something that any of us who who, who saw the TV pictures will remember. Yes, I mean, it's a lot of, I mean, the last third of the book is in many ways a, a police procedural. For the police, it started with combing through the rubble, trying to get you know, thinking, well, this is the, 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 the there's no intelligence. The, the, the IRA kept this operation very tight. So there was no, you know, MI5 or the RUC didn't have like, um, an informer to saying, oh, we think we know who did this. So they were really left to tabula rasa in, in, in Sussex. And the first step was to simply start going through the rubble, almost not quite literally with a fine tooth comb, but they filled about almost 4,000 worth of wheelie bins of rubble, which they sieved almost all of it to try to find um, the timers and everything else. And they're able to do that. And this was helped to, to identify the exact seat of the bomb. They were very lucky, I guess, the police in that the registration cards in the hotel survived. There had been no computerized system of, of recording guests. Um, when the police got this, they, they focused on the guests that had stayed in the sixth floor several weeks earlier because they knew IRA timers could go back several weeks, possibly even months. And so can they work backwards to say, well, you know, if it was if it was a guest probably on the sixth floor, maybe 629, maybe the one beside it. And who were these guests? And so then they started tracking down all of the guests. And they got everyone except this Roy Walsh, whom um, had given an, an address in London. And when they they knocked on the door, nobody had heard of this Roy Walsh. That's when he became the the prime suspect. But they had no idea who he was. Meantime, Scotland Yard started fingerprinting the, all the registration cards, but a special focus on the 1629 with Roy Walsh uh, to see if there's going to be a match um, fingerprint here with any of the IRA men on their, in their files. It took about four months in January of 1985. I mean, this is how slow, methodical, painstaking it was. They finally got a match, a teenage thief from, uh, um, from North of England who was Roy Walsh, uh, uh, who was Patrick McGee, who had been fingerprinted um, back in, I think, 1967. And of course, as once he joined the IRA and he had been brought in for questioning in the 70s, I mean, his file became very thick, right? But the original print, the match they made was with that. And so they thought, okay, so Roy Walsh is Patrick McGee, but now what? So there was initial glee and elation, like the police, we've, we, we know him, we've got him, except there's a problem, which was Patrick McGee was now living in Dublin. Irish courts tended to not extradite uh, IRA suspects to to Britain, and so they had an the security forces had an agonizing dilemma: Do we try for extradition anyway? Um, um, but if we do that, then McGee will now know that we're, we're we're onto him, and he'll know, assuming that he walks free from extradition, he'll know never to come back here. Or do we kind of sit tight, say nothing, and hope 
maybe he'll come back to the UK. Maybe he'll, he'll, he'll go and visit a girlfriend in Belfast or maybe he'll um, or come back for another operation. And so they decided to, to not ask the Irish police to seize him. Of course, it seems like maybe in some ways a much more innocent era. They knew it was McGee. They knew he was in Dublin. And they tried to have the guard Irish police to keep a sort of discreet watch on him. So, so, they, so they knew more or less what he was up to, but without alerting him to the fact that he was now being, had been rumbled for Brighton. They did not keep a close enough watch on him because at one point in around March 1985, he disappeared. When I came to the end of the book and thought through some of, some of those things that you mentioned, I started to think about not just, I mean, the story is an extraordinary story, but the relevance now when peace in Northern Ireland had been secured 20-something years ago by the Good Friday Agreement, effectively. No, it's not perfect, but it has been secured. And I just wondered if we got very careless about that and taken it for granted now, because Anthony Berry was murdered in the Brighton bombing, Airy Neve was murdered, as you say, Robert Bradford was murdered in Northern Ireland, another MP, a unionist MP, Ian Gow was murdered, and Mountbatten. And uh, the way in which... Northern Ireland has been talked about, but frankly disregarded over the past few years, struck me as an act of great carelessness, uh, which risks all kinds of things that have been achieved since the, the, the bombing in Brighton, and as a result of people finally getting together in the Good Friday Agreement. I just wondered what, you, what your thoughts now about that and about the implications for lasting peace. One of the things that really struck me was about in terms of the consequences and was the unintended effects and so many kind of twisting ironies that kind of thread this. I mean, for example, to go back to Margaret Thatcher, I mean, to her immense credit, having survived the bomb and delivered a, a barnstorming speech hours later, she then showed immense restraint in not going for a new round of internment, not unleashing the hounds of, you know, having the SAS hunting down Jerry Adams and basically falling into a Republican trap of overreaction, um, which previous governments had done. And so she deserved credit for that. And likewise, for the fact that she signed the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985. And that Anglo-Irish Agreement, she signed that agreement partly because, which gave to some listeners to, to explain, basically, for the first time, it gave a small, the Irish government, a, a consultative role in Northern Ireland which was groundbreaking and had not been done before. And it, it gave a, an infrastructure for Dublin, London to, to cooperate on political matters. And I mean, she did this partly in hope that it would improve security and also that it would stop Sinn Féin's electoral ascent and kind of bolster the more kind of moderate SDLP. So she had those reasons, but she was very brave and bold in, why she, in, in doing so and resisting a huge unionist backlash. And... You know, I came to a, a renewed respect for her role, you know, in, in that, in, in, for those acts of statesmanship. And in a way, the Anglo-Irish Agreement paved the Good Friday Agreement. It was, the, it was an important step. It didn't make the Good Friday Agreement inevitable, but it certainly was a key step that, that allowed, that gave an infrastructure to what became the peace process. And it also, it, it, for many other factors, it, helped, it really smoothed what we can now see, the path to eventual peace. And... I mean, Margaret Thatcher never dreamed of that. Another irony is that then the Good Friday Agreement, one of the conditions of that was that the early release of all paramilitary prisoners, including one Patrick McGee. So in a sense, Margaret Thatcher 
paved inadvertently paved the early release of the man who tried to kill her. And so, I mean, those are all these are all unintended effects here. And maybe the last one I would mention is, of course, Brexit, which is that Margaret Thatcher again was, um, in a sense, bequeathed this. Um, she didn't invent it, but I mean, she I think emboldened this Eurosceptic strain in the Tory Party, which we know led to Brexit, which to this day has destabilized Northern Ireland. And so this Thatcher's role alone, it's like, okay, she inadvertently helped deliver peace to Northern Ireland and the early release of her would-be assassin. And then at the same time, she also inadvertently, in a sense, destabilized the whole constitutional architecture of Northern Ireland and loosened its place in the Union by unleashing a strain of, of Euroscepticism. I mean, you can't make that up. You can't predict that. You, you know, it's just, it just happens. It unfolds through, through history. And I mean, so... For me, that was one of the, I guess, the, the fascinating and kind of intellectual joys of, of doing this book, the story, was to kind of thread those dots, but in a way, by, by looking through the actions of human, of human beings. I mean, the, the, the story, I really try to focus on basically, you know, half a dozen characters. Thatcher is one of them. And we see how their lives collide and intersect through the Brighton Bomb plot and then the hunt for the bombers. And, and again, all of these, yes, unintended effects, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, really. So that's a, a long kind of somewhat windy answer to your question, um, because I don't have a pat answer. I'm still making sense of it all on myself. Rory, um, thank you very much. I have to say that when I closed the book, I thought, do you know, if I didn't know this was true, I wouldn't have believed it because it is so astonishing for all the reasons that you have so articulated both in the book and in our conversation. So thank you very much. And Killing Thatcher is published by HarperCollins. If you enjoy today's bunker, you can help us make more of them by going to Patreon Bunker Podcast. A subscription costs as little as £3 a month. I'm Gavin Esler. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily was presented by Gavin Esler. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.